The Lord has blessed us with a lot of kids, a lot of kids at Cross Life, and uh, we love it. Um, they are on their way back to have a um, happy birthday Jesus celebration um, back here, and so they're going to they're gonna have fun, and we want them to celebrate Christmas, but we want them to, to keep in mind the reason for our Christmas holidays, and so that's what I liked about the, the program that the, the ladies put together is you listen, and it's Jesus and God and his mighty working on our behalf. And so oh, that was just wonderful. Yeah. We're going to pray for those kids. Um, that's what we're going to do right now. So if you will, bow with me. Lord God, um, you said that your house will be a house of prayer. And we try to do that every week that we can. We try to, try to remember to be in a time of constant prayer throughout our, our week. But, Lord, right now we want to concentrate on this, that we had children up here who were singing songs about you, who were saying verses about you, who were hearing about you and who, who believe and know that you are the God who created all things, that you are strong and mighty and that there's nothing that you cannot do. But Lord, the truth is, is that as they grow older, Lord, the enemy will begin to attack more and the world will push in more and there can be doubt and there can be questions Lord, there can be a vying for their affections. Lord, what I pray for our kids is that these aren't just songs that they sing and motions they do and, and words that they recite, but Lord, that these are truths that they hold to so dearly. Lord, we pray for their salvation even at young ages. Lord, that, that they will come to you with that childlike faith and that that childlike faith is what will hold them whenever they are 38 and 76 and on. But Lord, you have to do a work that we cannot do. We can share the gospel. We can, we can tell them of a great God. We can tell them of a great love. We can tell them of a great sacrifice. But unless you, God, are moving in their hearts and their hearts are moving towards you, Lord, there's nothing really that we can do. So we pray for their salvation. Lord, save our kids at a young age. Lord, be the God of their salvation, the God of their youth, and the God of their old age. But Lord, help us as parents to know how to do that, how to disciple them, through all the junk of life. And Lord, how to rejoice with them in all the joys of life. But Lord, also help us not only as parents, but Lord, help us as a church to be a culture and a community that disciples all of these young ones up through the ages. Lord, help us to be a church where one generation is intentionally pouring into the other generation, proclaiming the great things of who you are. Lord, as our kids celebrate your birthday, Lord, I pray that there is fullness of joy and that there is a simplicity of faith that you have called us to have. Lord, they are in your hands. We can honestly, truly do nothing to protect them more or to cultivate their heart more than to come to you. Lord, we love you and praise on your son's holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all, we're going to be in Philippians. So Philippians chapter 2. As y'all know, we, uh, we are in a unique time in our world. Um, we've been in it for about two years with COVID and coronavirus and variations, and, and it, it just kind of weaves its way in and out of, of our society. And I'm saying all that to say that there's a phone right here on the, the front bench, and it's um, one of my sons who's in quarantine right now, but he didn't want to miss church. He wanted to still be a part of everything. And so 
Um, we, I'm just saying, we get it. Like, we're just in an unusual time, and we're all trying to navigate it, here we go, together. Right? There, there's a unity that must exist in the church, and especially in unusual times and stressful times where the world should be able to look at who we are and say there is something unique and special in the church. So right now we, we have this, this odd moment, but you know what? Five years ago, there was something else in our society. In seven years, there was something else. In five years from now, there's going to be something else. All the variables will change in the world, but what must remain is the unity of the church. And that's what Paul is writing about in Philippians. He's not writing about COVID coronavirus. Don't you, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he's writing to a church where he's calling for unity in the midst of something else much larger going on in the world. For them, it was persecution. For them, they were living in the Roman world, and they were supposed to, to pay homage to the kings and to the authorities there, and they're sitting here paying homage to the Lord King. And so there's, there's a whole lot going on. But what I want you to know is the one thing that stays the same, whether it's for the Philippians or for us, is that we must hold God high. We must strive to honor the Lord. So with that said, we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And I just want to be very clear that we are reading Scripture today. This is not what Ricky's telling you, okay? So don't get mad at me. All right, here we go. He writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 15, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So that's our passage. Okay, and I'm just going to tell you, we're not really going to fully make it all the way through. If you look at verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, we're going to hold that verse, and I'm, I'm going to remind you at the end, we're going to hold on to that aspect of it till January. Why? Because it'll be the new year, and everybody's going to start their one-year Bible reading plan because it's going to be January, and you're going to have all these goals. But really, I want to look at what does it mean to truly hold fast to the word of life, especially today. So we're gonna, that's going to be in January. We're going to get as close to that as we possibly can. Why aren't we doing it next week? Because next week is um, the day right after Christmas. I want us to really dwell on the fact that our Christ came for us. And then it just so happens in God's sovereignty that verse 16, dwelling in the Word is a great way to start the year, and that's where we are in Scripture. Funny how God does things like that. It's like He knows all things and just orchestrates them perfectly, right? Okay, so here we go. Let's just break this down. Y'all, if we get up here whether it's, it's me, whether it's Andy, whether it's Jared, whoever it is that's preaching. If we get up here and we're preaching, we better be holding to the text. You should be able to put your eyes back on the text and say, that makes sense. That's what that means. We're not up here to just show you some sort of wisdom that we've somehow found on our own or to kind of shape a message or to say, you know what you really need to hear about right now? What you need to hear is about this. And then we're just bringing a lot of verses about what I think you need to know. What you need and the only thing that's going to truly keep you is God's Word. It has to go into us. It has to work through us. And it has to have its outworking from us. But I have no wisdom in and of myself. I can only tell you today what Scripture says. My role as the pastor is not to give you some nugget of truth that you never knew, but to point your eyes 
back to the centrality of Christ in Scripture and how do we respond to that. So that's, that's why we preach the way we do. But if we are up here and we share every theological depth and truth and we give you every Greek and Hebrew word and yet we can't leave this place and, and it take root in us, if it's not something that we are equipped to go with, then we're also not fulfilling our role. The church was meant to equip the saints for you to go out and do the work of ministry. And that's why he says, therefore, in verse 12. In verse 12, he starts with therefore. And if, you've, if you know what I'm about to say, then you're going to know how to finish it. But therefore is what? Therefore a reason. The therefore is therefore a reason. It's a subordinating conjunction. It's a conjunction that tells us that everything that follows it is basically predicated on everything that came before it. That's awesome. You don't seem thrilled. I seem very thrilled about that. I'm an English teacher. This is amazing to have the therefore right there. He says, therefore, in other words, because everything that's about to follow is relying upon what came right before it. If you take away what came before it, the therefore has no power anymore. The therefore matters. It's there for a reason. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you're going along and you get to therefore, then you probably need to underline the therefore because the therefore is there for a reason. It's telling you that everything that follows is because of everything that came before. You just heard what he said is going to follow. Always obey. Work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Shine his lights in the world and hold fast to the word of truth. He's about to tell you all that, but he says therefore first. Why? Y'all got to go here. We were there last week, but let's put it in context. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is why he says therefore. And his therefore, just so you know, it's going to be a call to respond in obedience. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right, so we possess this. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he did that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise the Lord, amen. Therefore... As you have always obeyed, continue on, is what he's going to say. But just dwell on that real quick. Think about the great humility of Christ. That's what 5 through 11 is about, the great humility of Christ, the great servanthood of Christ, the great service and the great sacrifice. And his final exaltation, Paul did not write 12 through, through 18 or 12 through 16 just on its own. It fits into the letter to the Philippians. He just dwelt on the fact that Christ did all these things on our behalf. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, amongst whom the, the, the writers of the time would not even write about it because it was so gruesome and humiliating. And he writes all of that, and then he says, therefore, here's what I need you to do, Philippians. Here's the outworking of your faith. Here's the authenticity of your faith in light of the gospel. That's what he's about to give us. If we read the, the letter to the Corinthians... He gives them some different aspects that they need to be working on. 
As he writes to the Philippians, he writes some of these aspects that they should be working on. And to the Galatians, the same thing. But here's, here's what it all comes down to. When we fully understand the gospel, then our lives are lived in direct obedience and response to the gospel. We don't hear the gospel, make a decision, and then go live however we want. We hear the gospel, it takes root, and we keep looking back at it, remembering the great sacrifice of God on our behalf, and then we keep trying to live in humble obedience to it. Okay, so everything is packed into that, therefore. So I want to start right here. He says, as you've always obeyed. And that's where we can stop. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed. So the Philippians, that's their reputation. Philippians, as you have always obeyed. To what degree did they obey? Always. Did they always obey Paul? He's really referring more to they always obey Christ. I'm just wondering if we want to, you know, because life gets messy in the church, like we can just kind of say, how's your obedience going? Is that your reputation? Have you always been obedient? But can you imagine, like, that's the church's reputation the church of Philippi, they are known to always obey. Whatever it is that God wants of them, they do. Whenever Paul writes to them and says this is what the gospel-centered life looks like, he knows that they're walking in it. And he says, not that you've always obeyed, but now you don't. He says, as, you've, as you have always obeyed, continue on. That should be the reputation of the church. But what happens, because we live in a sinful world and the church is full of sinful people, sometimes the reputation of the church starts to get skewed. I want to encourage you believers, don't partake in, in, in corrupting the reputation of a church. The church is Christ's bride. He died for her. We defend the church. We speak for the church. But you know what? We live as the church. The reputation of the church of Philippi is that they've always obeyed. And so here's what he tells them. He says, okay, so here's what, it's going to, here's what you're going to do. You're going to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let's look at that. What does it mean to work out your salvation? He is writing, by the way, the your in the original language is plural. So he's writing to the whole church, but the whole church is also made up of collective individuals. So as I'm working out my own salvation, so is Matt. And as Matt is, so is Justin. And just as Justin is, so is Drew. And so is Cliff. Like we're all working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But as we're doing that, it brings us into life alongside one another. And everything that we do together must develop unity. That has been the trend throughout all the verses up until now, is that we must be unified. Psalm 133, it's actually posted on the wall over here. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So all of this, as you work out your salvation, as I work out my salvation, we're doing it individually, we're doing it collectively. But look at, it, look at that. Work out your own salvation. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say work at your salvation. Or work towards your salvation. It says work out your salvation. And it's, that's actually pretty significant. If I told you yesterday that yesterday I had a problem and I was working at a solution, to work at a solution does not mean that I'm actually going to find the solution. It doesn't mean I found it. It just means that I worked at it. I had a problem. I was working at it. So if I said, hey, Paul, I had a problem yesterday. Electricity on my back porch is messed up. I'm working at a solution. I, I'm, I'm hoping to find it. That's how it translates in our, into to our common vernacular. If I say I'm working toward a solution, it means that I think that there's a solution there, and, but I'm still trying to find it. This says work out your salvation. If I told you that yesterday 
that the electricity on my porch messed up and I'm working out a solution. The understanding is that it's, it's done. Like I'm, I'm just trying to work out all the semantics and all the, the pieces of it. That's what he's saying is your salvation is not in question. You don't even have to earn your salvation. It's already done. But in light of your salvation, you need to be working out your salvation. You have to work at it. The key word in it there is work. We cannot passively believe that we're going to grow in our Christian faith just because we made a proclamation of faith and say, well, I was saved then, and so I'm fine. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that it's that simple. What we see in Scripture is that because we are saved, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because we are saved, we want to be obedient. Because what will happen is if, if we say you need to work out your salvation and somebody mishears us, they're going to say, I don't, have to, I don't have to work that out. That's legalism. I don't have to do anything else for my salvation. I don't have to work it out. That's legalism. That sounds like you want me to check off some boxes. It's not legalism. It's obedience. We are called to live a life of obedience. We cannot profess a Christ that has died for us and still live as though we don't have Christ in our lives. That shows what our faith is really like. But we must, if we say that we truly believe that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and he made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, if we believe this, and even death on a cross... And if we believe that Christ is so highly exalted by God because of his humility and that at the knee of Jesus, every, if we really believe those things, then our lives should be radically different every single day. But we can all be passive about our faith. You got to be passionate about it. You know what it's like to be passive. Like if you just sit there and you wait on things to go and you're going to deal with them as they come up, try doing that with your faith that shifted all of eternity on your behalf. We were destined for hell. We had no hope, but Christ came for us. And therefore, Paul writes, in light of your salvation, you need to work out your salvation. But if you're not working at it and you're just coasting, then you will have an ineffective Christian life. We don't like to say that. We like to, we like to say, well, no, he secures the saints for all time. Yeah, but we know who the saints are because they're working out their salvation. And so he goes on, and here's what I want you to, to look at. We work it out with fear and trembling. My, my biggest fear, my biggest concern is this, that just as our culture has forgotten how to blush, the church has forgotten how to tremble. We serve a great and holy and mighty and majestic God. We serve a God who is completely unlike us. Go to Job chapter 38. This is, a, this is just a glimpse of the God that we are striving to honor in our lives. And while you're turning there, what we're going to look at in this passage is not meant to be a checklist of legalism of, well, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. It's because God has saved us, just to clarify, because God has saved us, we act in obedience to him. We don't obey to be saved. We obey because we have been saved. But we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And to me, what I have found is that whenever God in my life is high and holy and exalted, and I don't try to make him so comfortable as our culture would want us to make him, but whenever he is high and holy, that begins to reshape how I live my life. 
But if I am the king or, or the center of my universe and my kingdom, and I'm seeking only my pleasure and my desire, then I'm going to live a life where I believe I'm the Savior, and I'm going to crumble under that because I cannot save myself. But whenever I see him as he truly is, and he's my Savior, then he demands and he, ex- he expects, excuse me, <clears throat> and he is honored by all that I can give him. Here's our God in Job 38. Y'all know the story of Job. It says Job was a righteous man. He was blessed with wealth. He was notable. This is all Job 1 through 37, right? We're not reading all of it right now. Though we could and it would be fun, but we won't. But the story of Job is that he was a righteous man and he was wealthy and he had many great things going for him. And the reason that everything went south for him is because Satan goes into the council of God and he says, I've been going back and forth throughout the the earth. Satan does. He says, I've been going back and forth throughout the earth looking for someone. And God says, have you considered my righteous servant, servant Job? He's amazing. Like, have you looked at him? And Satan's like, the only reason that Job responds and loves you and responds to you in the way that he does is because you've blessed him with everything. And so who goes on trial is not Job. Who goes on trial, if we're thinking of a courtroom, is actually God. Because God says, no, his faith is true. I am enough for Job. And so Satan says, let's see. And so then Satan gets the freedom systematically to start stripping everything away from Job to see if if God really is enough for Job. And in the course of it, there's a whole lot of great theology and there's a whole lot of misapplied theology. You've got to be careful as you're reading the book of Job. But here's what I love is Job finally, I mean, he, he keeps saying, I am not a sinner. I am righteous. God, this is your fault. So he begins, Job even begins to question the one who said that here's my righteous servant. And that's why God steps in in verse 38. God finally answers him. Answers him for about two chapters, and they're amazing. And God says to Job, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, So all of a sudden, Job is there. He's been taking counsel with his friends. And all of a sudden, there's a whirlwind. There's a tornado that is right out there on the playground. And God begins to speak from the tornado, from the whirlwind to Job, a man who is humbled in ashes on the ground. He, the Lord answered Job, and he says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man, and I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God asked Job, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst open from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and I said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And God just keeps going on and on and on and he's speaking from a whirlwind to Job and he's saying to Job, where were you at the creation of the world and where are you on the mountaintops whenever the young deer is needing to eat or the goat is being born? In other words, Job, you know nothing and you're asking me questions about my creation. I don't have to give you an answer. Our God does not have to give us an answer. We don't deserve that. He is not like us, and we don't like that. 
We want our God to be comfortable enough to walk into this room and to sit with us, and we're able to go shake his hand and say, what's up, God? How you been? He's the one who created all things, and he set the bounds of the seas that we go look at on vacation, and he keeps the waves rolling from the ancient times to now, the same waves rolling and rolling, and he's the one who spoke them into existence. He doesn't owe us an answer. And Job was asking for an answer. And he's going to go on throughout the rest of Job. You need to look at that. But our God is completely unlike us. He even tells us that. Look at Psalm 50, 21. This is what we need so that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Whenever God is exalted and held high and holy and we see him as he truly is, then sin, you know what, is not as satisfying. Whenever he's high and holy, then we, and he's the God that we, that we keep elevated in our lives and exalted, then no other God can have a place in our life. That's what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Psalm 50, 21. The Lord speaking, he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. And then this is a part of the verse that just absolutely stops me. The Lord speaking to his people, and he says, You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay aside the charge before you. I'm afraid that that's where we are in our churches these days. That we think our God is one who is entirely like us. And he's not. And praise God he's not. Praise God he is not as fickle and frail as me. I am great one moment. The next moment I am not fine. You should watch me for about an hour before church starts. Like just, you know, get some, get a get a Coke and get some popcorn and just watch me. And I go for moments of exaltation. I'm excited. I'm ready to go. And then, oh, my goodness, like, okay, everything's about, everybody's here. Oh, my goodness, we're about to start. Is everything working? It is working. If it isn't going to keep working, is the ice machine turned on? Is it on? I mean, there's just chaos. And then, like, we start singing the first song, and I'm like, I'm on the mountaintop again, and everything's wonderful. And then we're, like, man, I'm like this. Praise God. He's not like this, but he's high and exalted, and he's immovable for all of eternity. We can respond to that. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you've not sat through many sermons uh, at Cross Life, then uh, we're going to try to be as thorough as we can. But we usually spend quite a bit of time in the opening section because to me the opening is what um, anchors everything else that follows. I really want us to get out this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 12 through 13. The preacher writes, the preacher is the, the author of Ecclesiastes. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. I just want us to be mindful that we should work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. Keep the holy God ever before you. Sin is no small thing. Our, our culture would say, well, that's, that's an okay sin. I mean, that's a natural sin. That's something that, that, we can, that, that most people gravitate towards or struggle with. Or, you know what, I know that you're supposed to go to the mission field, but really that's a great expense. That's probably something that's supposed to be for much later in life. And we start to rationalize and make logical conclusions using worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. And the godly wisdom is that he who was on high took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. And he came for us and he died for us. And he said, I demand your life in return. And we live in obedience to that. 
And he says, I am not like you. I am worthy of so much more worship. Hebrews says this, it is a fearful thing to be in the hands of a living God. If we do not have fear of our Lord, then we need to pray that he develops that in us. If we don't fear before him, he's not large enough in our lives. We're, we're not really dwelling enough. But I'll tell you this. Here's how sin works in us. If he's not the Lord that we fear in our lives, then we will make our own selves the Lord that we fear in our lives. We will become the one who makes all the decisions and makes everything peaceful for us. He says, I want to just keep moving on. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he gives us confidence, right? Because he says, for it's the Lord who works in you. If you and I were just trying to work this out on our own, it would be ridiculous. We would fail. It would be discouraging, and there's no way we could fulfill it. But he says, but it's the Lord who works in you, and he wants to do this because it's to his pleasure. The God who governs all of existence, the sovereign king, takes pleasure in bringing you closer to him. That's just crazy. Y'all aren't smiling at that, neither am I. It's crazy that he cares that much about you. You who will live for 70, 90, I mean, I'll be 113 years probably. But those of us, our breath, our life is but a breath, it's but a vapor. And he takes pleasure in bringing us to him. We have hope in this Philippians 1.6. This was, y'all go ahead and flip back to Philippians. Remember the, the hope in Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am sure of this, and cross off, I'm telling you, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We must be obedient. He will do the completion. He will bring us to himself. We are his people. He is our God, and he is bringing us home. Okay, so what's the big part of that? I mean, we could stop right here and not meddle at all. But now we're to verse 14. Do all things. So what is the outworking of our faith? Right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that's enough for us right there, right? Just look at that. Do all things. Okay, so let's just be very simple because I want it to be very practical. I don't want us to miss anything. Here's a great biblical study. Do blank things without grumbling or disputing. All. Do all things. Give me a break, Paul. I mean, like for crying out loud. I mean, do most things, do the majority of your things, but do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining um, is what some translations have. But I want you to see the why. Because if that's just a command, then, then we can say, well, I'm no good at that. I'm done. You need to understand the why. When we do all things without grumbling or disputing, look how it goes on. Verse 15 so that you may be blameless and innocent. The way in which we speak, whether out loud or internally, does reveal something about our faith. I don't like that. Because you know what I spend a lot of time doing? Grumbling and complaining, advising God. Sometimes I think he just needs a good idea of, Lord, if you want to bless me today in this way, and Lord, I know you thought this would be good for me, but really... I don't know what you're doing here. I would actually prefer you do it this way. Like, I spend a whole lot of my time talking to God about things that God's trying to do in my life and trying to give him better advice of how I think that that should go. 
Or sometimes I'm sitting there, I'm talking to a brother in Christ. I'm like, hey, I know you know my heart, but, but here's, here's what I just got. To, and then we just want to we we complain. We want to dispute. We want to grumble because we, we deserve that, right? Because we deserve these things to go our way in life. We know what's best for us. I get it, y'all. I'm confessing my sins before you. There's a reason Chas is not in here in this sermon and that I'm hoping she doesn't get a copy of the, of the podcast because she's going to come back and say, remember that sermon? How you're not supposed to grumble or complain because it reveals the authenticity of your faith? Let me play it again for you over and over. Like, I, she's not in here for a reason, okay? <laughs> Got to protect myself. I'm telling you, I'm no good at this. <coughs> I am no good at doing all things without grumbling or complaining and let's get real, neither are you. James says that our tongue is a restless evil set on fire by God, and it sparks a whole world of sin. But it happens in our minds as well. And here's the thing. Just because we don't speak it doesn't mean the Lord doesn't hear it. Here's what I think we need to, to understand. First off, um, just real, you know, let's put 15 aside. Why would we do all things without grumbling or disputing? Because God is either sovereign or he's not. He either knows what he's doing and he is either sovereign over all creation and he knows where I am and what I need and what the context of my life is and he, and he either knows that I truly believe that he's with me and working with me and through me for my good that he's really, as I'm working out my fear, uh, working out my salvation with fear and trembling, that he's working in me. If all those things are true, then why in the world would I grumble and complain if my God is with me, if he's in me, if he's working through me, and if he's doing everything for my good, why would I grumble or complain? That's kind of the idea there. Paul's in prison here. Paul knows that he may very well die. That's why he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knows that he's going to die. And instead of spending time grumbling and complaining, he says, what can I do for God in this moment? How can I make much of him in this moment? If God is sovereign and I'm in this prison cell, then it's got to be for a reason. If I'm living life and all of this is going on around me and it's been somehow entrusted, we don't like to think that, but if this moment has been entrusted to me, then how do I make much of Christ? How and what in the world, God, are you doing? If you are sovereign, then I have to trust you. Therefore, I'm not going to grumble or complain. I'm just going to trust you. The opposite of grumbling and complaining is trusting and obedience. So in those moments, we have that before us so that by lack of grumbling and complaining, Watch this. We may be blameless and innocent so that we can be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's the outworking of if I don't grumble, if I don't complain, what's the testimony? What does it show? It shows that I want to be blameless and innocent. It shows that I am a child of God and it shows me to be a light in this world. You know, everything here is falling apart. That's why I want to kind of start with reminding you of the odd culture we're in right now. And I just use COVID, but look at the cultural divide and rifts that are developing. Not even out there, but even that are occurring within the church as it gathers. Rifts and divisions are happening. Things are falling apart. The sinner, uh, I believe it was Yeats, the poet, the sinner will not hold. Center, C-E-N-T-E-R. Okay. The center will not hold in this world. Everything is falling apart. It is dark out there. You have a right 
to grumble and complain if you only look at the world. But we don't look at the world. We look at Christ. And we say, Lord, I'm going to use a very, we've got young kids in here, but it's just sometimes the most theologically fitting word for me. Lord, this sucks, right? Sometimes that's what life is. I know I'm going to get in trouble for that one. But sometimes that's what life is. There's no other way to put it all into context except that's how I feel right now. But we can't look at the darkness of the world. Think, have you ever gone out, like away from the city lights, and you look up and you see the stars stretched across the sky? Whether it's at a beach, whether it's in a pasture, but you get a chance and you get to see those stars stretched out there. And what it does is it takes your breath away and there's something really humbling because you begin to feel so much smaller and you realize that there's a creation that is so much bigger. And for all the darkness you see, look at those beautiful lights against it. And we begin to look at patterns and we find the Big Dipper and we find Ursa Minor over here and we look for Orion and we see this beauty stretched out across the darkness. And so must we be, church. That's what it says, is that in the midst of a wicked and corrupt, twisted generation, we shine as lights in the world. Have you ever tried to find the Big Dipper, though? And you can't find that one star, and you realize, well, the constellation, that, that's not even the Big Dipper. It's supposed to be over here. And so, but you're, you, you see that the pattern is broken. One of the stars that you're looking for isn't there. It's not shining. That can happen to us. It can happen that our light gets dimmed and that people who are looking for the beauty against a dark world that we are supposed to be, they can't see it anymore because we've just become passive. You will find that the more time you spend with God, the more natural this will become. So do all things, church. Paul wrote that, not me. I just want to clarify. And not even Paul Richmond, so don't wait for him in the parking lot. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, he wrote from a prison cell to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining so that you may be blameless and innocent. Blameless means above criticism. Like you go back to the original word, so you can be above criticism. Nobody can criticize you because of how you grumble and complain and speak. Then he goes on and it says that we will be innocent. Another word there is pure, which means thoroughly wholesome and character. So the way that we speak and how we handle a crisis that comes around us in the context of our lives does reveal the authenticity of our faith. There's a whole lot in the Bible that is to be said of words. They are not just words. They're not just some cultural meaning thing. They are powerful. They do reveal who we are. He says that whenever we don't grumble and dispute, it shows that we are children of God. You and I, we are the representatives of Christ in this world. And he says that the way that we grumble and complain and handle the things that come towards us, that that's going to reveal that we are in relationship with Christ. Y'all, we know that our God is in the heavens. We know that our God is working all things out for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that everything is in his sovereign control. We know that he is working in us, through us, and for us. And so we have a totally different perspective whenever a crisis comes towards us. And here's what I need from you. Whenever I come to you and I'm grumbling and complaining, I need you to lovingly come alongside and say, remember all things, because that's what life and community is all about. I don't have this thing figured out, but I can tell you this, because I fear God and because I tremble before his holiness, I need you to keep me from sin that I don't even see coming in my life. 
I want to do all things without grumbling and complaining, but I'm just telling you, my tongue is a restless evil. There's a reason that I don't talk a whole lot in many contexts because I don't want to make a mistake. But the way that we speak, oh my goodness, scripturally, biblically speaking, it says a whole lot more about our faith than we want it to. We've looked at how we shine as lights. I want to take you to a few verses and then we're going to start to land the plane. John, go to John 8, 12. We're going to be in the Gospels. Just took three, three brief sections. Look at John 8, 12. John 8, 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, Excuse me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So just, and you know what you see all throughout John? He's going to refer to himself as a light over and over again. It's a, it's a motif that occurs. Go to John 12, 36. John 12, 36 says, Jesus speaking to them, while you have the light, believe in the light. So he's calling them to believe in that moment. But look at this, that you may become sons of light. When we believe, do you realize, that's, that's a cool thing. I mean, it sounds like a wrestling tag team, I'm not going to lie. Sons of light. The sons of light are here. But that's what we are in Jesus Christ. We are sons of light in the midst of a wicked and twisted generation in a dark place where everything is falling apart. You and I are sons and daughters of light. If you profess Christ, you don't have a choice. You are a son and daughter of light. The question is, will you be obedient? Last one. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. I want to come back to this one because we're individually applying these. Remember, Paul was writing to the Philippians. He was writing to a body of believers who were doing life collectively together. And that's what this one... Seems like it's for to me. He says to them, you are the light of the world, collectively. A city, which is made up of more than just one person, a city, a, this, this city on a hill, it cannot be hidden. The city of light. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they set it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, church, let your light shine before men so that, here's why, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you know why we do good deeds? So that others may see the goodness of God in this dark world and they can glorify Him. We are called to be light. Not only by Paul, who could have, let's just say, well, he could have been wrong there. But he can't be because he's echoing all the words of Christ. You do a study of what Jesus teaches and what Paul and Peter and the apostles teach, and you're going to see a direct correlation. One way in which we are lights in this world is we do all things without grumbling and complaining. And what I would do if you were me, because I need this, put some people around you in your life who are close and who know you and who know how you grumble who know how you complain, and they're going to listen, and they also don't mind for it to get awkward and call you out on it. I'm just going to make y'all, you have that free reign because I talk to all of you at different times, and some of you know all my different contexts of my different jobs and my different roles, and, and so I talk to you. 
You all have that freedom of Ricky, all things without grumbling or complaining. You know why? Because, Ricky, you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you know why? Because your Jesus left all glory and came for you. Like, I can endure all things, not because I have the power and might and strength in myself, but because my God is sovereign. We have to shift away from ourselves. Okay. And then he also says this in verse 16, and we're not, we're not going to push into this one. But he does say, you know what it means to, to work out your salvation with, with fear and trembling, to be obedient? It means that you hold fast, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So one last attribute. What does it mean to, to be obedient? Which is really the call here, a call to be obedient. It means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It means to do all things without, um, do all things without complaining or grumbling. It means that we're going to shine like stars. And it means that we're going to hold fast to the word of life. You know, there's a great danger in our Christianity today that you can be a Christian and know nothing of the word. And whenever I say Christian, I'm putting it out there like that. There's a cultural Christianity that is not rooted and grounded in the word. So what I want to do is I want to make sure that you get cross life and, and those who are gathered, that, that you get what you really need. And that's not me, that's the word. If you look at everything in your life and the word has no place and no primary importance in it, then every decision that you make should be called into question. Every situation is going to be overwhelming. You and I need the word so much more than we think that we do and so much more than Satan would ever tell us that we do. But what's one of the first things that we're going to cancel out in our day? We're going to take out our time in the word. You take out your time in the word, all the world begins to make a whole lot more sense to you. Because you start thinking like the world, you start living in the world, you start getting comfortable in the world. We weren't meant for this world, we were meant for another. And the Bible reminds us of who that king is. In January, we're going to pick up at verse 16. We're going to look at why does holding to the word matter? What does it mean to hold to the word? And then I'm just going to give you some practical, here's how you can read the Bible. Like here's a, here's a simple plan you can follow that you don't have to worry about the year in a Bible and oh goodness, it's January 5th and I already missed January 4th. That means 30 minutes, so I'm just going to wait till tomorrow with a bigger cup of coffee. Like just simple practical ways of how you can stay in the Word and start to live out that Word. I want to encourage you in this. You are living out the Word right now by showing up and fellowshipping with other believers. It says do not neglect the gathering um, or do not neglect the gathering of the saints or neglect gathering with fellow believers. You and I need this. You need to know that there are other stars out there in the darkness that are trying to shine, and we can do this together. So we'll pick up on hold fast to the word. I'm going to read you Philippians 2, 5 through 11, not 12 first. We're going to start Philippians chapter 2, 5, and, and I want to pull all of that into context so you can hear the thrust of it. And then we're going to pray and praise our Lord and go live as lights in this, this world. So cross life, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now that is our call. Our Christ took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. He has saved us. And in light and in response to the gospel, we live lives of obedience. And I need you to help me in that, but I have confidence in this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, and that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You do not work at this alone. You work alongside one another, and we work in conjunction with the Spirit and with Christ who is interceding for us. We are not without hope. Your salvation will be worked out. Be obedient. Lord God, for everything that I cannot do and cannot communicate. Lord, I am thankful that you are within us, your spirit within believers, your spirit within your word. Lord, you, the son interceding on our behalf. Lord, you are for us. You not only knit us together in our mother's womb, you recreated us in Christ Jesus so that we may do the good works. The scripture says are to bring you glory. But as we do these good works, you will put us in the midst of a twisted and dark generation so that we may shine as light, so that whenever we shine, others will know that there is a God who is much bigger than the darkness. Lord, help us to work out our fear, or work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, teach me to tremble before who you are. Teach me to be humble. And teach me that you are sovereign and that you are with me. Amen.